The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. This Dharma, incomparably profound, minutely subtle, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see this. We can listen to this. We can express and know this. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Virtue is that which flows out of your authentic innermost self. Without this, honesty is mistaken and insufficient. It is like trying to move in a boat without an oar. <coughs> it is one thing to see accurately. It is another to allow yourself to feel what you see with virtue, and still another to allow your actions in the world to be formed by both honest seeing and a devotion to the virtuous life. All this reminds me of the stained glass master in Europe who would teach three ways of seeing as necessary to create a sacred window. First, she would say, there is the need to see what image of life shapes the window. Next, there is the need to fill the window with color. And finally, there is the act, the pledge, to let it all come alive by placing it in the light. How like stained glass each of us are. Honesty and virtue enables us to discover the images of life that shape us, the images that scratch and stain us with experience. But these are nothing without the sincerity of heart that will fill them and us with color. And then, if we are to come alive at all, we must place ourselves in the light. We all know how sudden and brilliant a stained glass window can be. Dirty and opaque one moment and breathtaking as soon as the sun floods it and we can see it from the inside. We are the same, sacred windows in the making. So to place ourselves in the light and to see each other from the inside are the most important skills we must learn. When we do these things, we are practicing devotion. We are practicing virtue. This may sound difficult, but it is no different than how we coordinate the eye, hand, and mouth to eat every day. 
It is basic and necessary. And after we learn, we do it every day without thinking. So good evening. Good evening. Good evening. And welcome. Earlier today, I was called to the bedside, actually it was late last night, of a couple I married uh, back in 2009 here. And I was called to the bedside of the bride whose child died at birth. And uh, obviously I went there to share in their grief and do whatever I could. And I was asked to uh, chant Daisagaki over uh, the corpse of the uh, unborn baby. And for a moment during my time with them, I got to think about how we so often uh, measure value and measure worth, both of ourselves and of others. And as I spoke with the mother alone before her husband arrived, uh, the father, uh, we talked a little bit about how she was feeling. And obviously in these moments, or maybe not so obvious, God forbid, I hope none of, no one here has or ever has to experience it. In these moments, part of the grieving process almost immediately is a sense of failure and, and guilt and despair about oneself as a, as a parent. And so we talked about that for a few moments. And as I drove home from uh, University of Pennsylvania Hospital this afternoon, I reflected on what this event had to do with tonight. And for me, it has to do with everything. When you look into the hearts, into the minds of both those parents, this small child, born still, changed their lives forever in just a moment of presence in life. Their lives perhaps will be a great deal more profound and deeper in the days ahead. We talked about, you know, trying again to have another child. This was their first together. And we talked about, uh, you know, going forward in love and devotion to each other and how such grief could sometimes uh, really put a rough edge on that. But this young, very short birth, this life lived very briefly, touched these two people, their family and friends and neighbors in such a way, for just one brief moment, having none of the trappings we often look for in another person, in another being, to measure their value or their worth. Just her presence, Amelia Suzanne was her name, just her moment present in their life changed their life, changed the lives of their family and friends, and ultimately the world. Our presence has value. And tonight, when we talk about the seven heavenly virtues and how they apply to living not only the spiritual life, but the life of a human being, because again, in Zen, when we talk about living the spiritual life or living spiritually, 
we talk about living as a full human being because we human beings are spiritual beings. And as Chardin once warned us when he said, we are spiritual beings experiencing a human experience. But so often we, lived our we live our lives as if we are human beings striving to have a spiritual experience. And tonight's topic is about flipping that understanding, flipping that awareness, and how the seven heavenly virtues have as a paradigm or a context for us the gift of awakening within us everything we normally look for outside ourselves. The way we normally do it is we look for value both in ourselves and in others outside ourselves. And if we were listening to Mark Nepo's word, the stained glass window must be viewed from the inside in order to truly appreciate its beauty and its value. And each of us as stained glass windows must find the light we are looking for, the satisfaction and the contentment we are looking for within us because each of us possess as taught in Buddhism, that seed of Buddha nature, that light of wisdom, that light of infinite potential, as the Buddha described it. And if we cannot find it within ourselves, we are never going to find it anywhere else. And most of us, and perhaps to the number of attendants tonight, speaks to that, are constantly looking for some kind of inspiration, some kind of light in some institution, in some other person, in some event, in some messiah, in the new Buddha, in the new guru, and so forth. And, you know, often the evidence that we witness on the news and in our communities and around the world or just driving on the highway, as I did today, shows that's not working too well for any of us. And so tonight I want to invite you to first take inventory as we talk about these virtues and living the virtuous life or what the Buddha called the noble life. Tonight is about what the Buddha called living the life of nobility, a noble life, being noble in the world. And we need more of that in the world if we are ever going to see any change or any light in its darkened corners. So tonight is about taking inventory. And as we discuss each of these virtues, instead of just listening to me, I want to invite you to really reflect on them in your own life. The seven heavenly virtues, when I first heard them, uh, in the form that I heard them, was about uh, third grade, fourth grade Catholic school. Tonight you're going to hear the Buddhist interpretation of those virtues. And in that interpretation, we understand the virtues that we discuss tonight to be literally practices. Practices who, whose effect or power have in practicing them, in living them. We must live the virtues, we must more accurately be the virtues in order to experience their power in our personal lives and in the world. As Mark Nepo again says to us, so often we are looking for that 
which can only be found within. I want to read the opening phrase to you one more time. Devotion to or virtue is that which flows out of your authentic innermost self. Without this, honesty is mistaken and insufficient. It is like trying to move in the boat without an oar. To live the virtuous life is to live authentically in the world. Virtue and authenticity are brother and sister, yin and yang. To live the virtuous life is to live authentically. To live authentically. And by authentically, I mean, when the Buddha talks about the cause of suffering, we have the general cause of suffering, the blanket answer, if you will, the short answer in Buddhism as to why I remain uh, dissatisfied, discontent, why the world seems to continue to be so uh, filled with so much suffering. And the answer to that is we live lives ignorant of who we truly are. And that the person we are constantly being in the world is this inauthentic imposter or actor on a stage. To live the virtuous life is to live an authentic life. To live authentically is the singular and exclusive solution to my suffering and the suffering of the world. I would suggest to you that, again, that all the suffering we witness on a daily basis in the world can find its root cause in millions and millions of human lives, living lives they would rather not be living, living lives they would prefer not to live, being on a daily basis this imposter, this actor, and so forth. Virtue, Nepo's words say to us, comes out of our innermost, deepest, profound self, who we truly are. 2,500 years ago, when the Buddha was asked to talk about what a human being was, he would call a human being compassion. He would not talk about it as if we possess compassion, he would say a human being is compassion. A human being is loving kindness. We are made of the, of the stuff of compassion and love. That is what we are. And again, when we look at our world and we see so little compassion on a global basis, if you will, certainly I witnessed compassion in that hospital today uh, with Rachel and, and her husband and towards them and the child. But when we take a look at the war and the poverty and the crime and the greed that continues to be on the increase, we must ask ourselves again, where is the compassion? The Buddha said that we are love. We are made of the stuff of love, each of us. Love created the universe. Love created you and me. And so to live virtuously is to live authentically. Because each time we choose to express virtue in the world, in our choices, in our decisions, in our ways of being, we are bringing a force of nature to our actions, and the only force of nature that can bring about real change. When we talk about, again, the seven heavenly virtues, we are talking about ways of being that, again, Nepo suggests to us, must come from our deepest innermost self, our truest self. 
Otherwise, it is uh, dishonest and insufficient. So we know th that virtue is at work within us in the results, in the results. It is in the results we find the power of virtue. And whenever virtue is present, something else becomes very clear. Most people I talk to and have spoken with over the past 40 years about their personal life and about how they feel often come to me and one of the first things in the first 10 minutes they say to me is that I feel so unstable. I feel like my life is not stable, not grounded. I, I don't know about tomorrow. Uh, I regret the past. So there is this general sense of instability and this general sense of non-groundedness, a fear of the future and a regret of the past. And again, the way we often respond to that or react to that is to look for that stability or look for that groundedness in someone or something outside us. We go looking for a group of people that perhaps we can become part of that will help us feel grounded. We go looking for that safety and that security outside us, never to find fulfillment in that particular practice. Buddhism teaches us that that groundedness and stability we are seeking in our life once again must be found within us. If we do not find it there, we cannot find it anywhere else. And the way we find it within ourselves is the conscious choice to live virtuously to live by what you have often heard me call a code of life and to live with integrity. Our life's actions, the Buddha said, not our thoughts, not our feelings, not our emotions, not our desires, but he said, my actions in the end is who I am. What I bring to the moment, what I bring to life is who I am. In this moment, if you want to know who I am, look at my actions. Look at what I am bringing to the moment, and that is who I am. That is who I am. And so, if I want to know a sense of groundedness and wholeness and completeness, my actions must be the component or the means towards that. To live the virtuous life is to live a life grounded and a life grounded in such a way that the Buddha used to say, like the great oak tree, tree whose roots go deep into the earth and spread wide, when the great storm comes across the plain, it cannot be uprooted. It cannot be shook. It may lose a few branches and it may lose a few leaves. But in the end, when you look back across that field, what's still there is the great oak. That groundedness, that stability in change and tragedy and so forth can only be found within the being. And that inner integrity and devotion and sincerity to live by a code of life, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, is the only security in an ever-changing and impermanent reality we are ever going to find.
We cannot find it outside ourselves. In fact, I would say that if this was possible, the universe is teaching us the lesson that it is never going to be found in our institutions, in our places of government, all of these various institutions and sources that we have depended upon and turned to time and time again is proving to be inadequate as a source for human compassion and love to thrive in the world. And that is what we all want to know. And so tonight I want to invite you to take inventory as we go through these seven virtues. And by that I mean I don't want you to take inventory about whether or not you've got a good IRA that's going to carry you through retirement or how far you've gone in your career or how much money you may have in the bank. All of that stuff may be important to some degree. But in the end, none of that. When within myself there is this ever-turning storm of dissatisfaction goes on. I can have all the money in the bank, but if I am not content within myself, all the money in the bank is not going to buy me that contentment. I can have all the security in the future, but if I don't know how to live moment to moment in a way that I can find contentment even in the most simplest activities and in the most simplest possessions, if you will, then none of that will prove to be sufficient. So taking inventory has to do with where you are at the moment. A simple Zen formula. If all the lights in this room were suddenly to go out, and I was not aware of where I was at the moment they went out, I would find it very difficult to find my way out of this room especially if I had to get out. We cannot know where to go if we don't know where we are. We cannot know where to go if we don't know where we are. And right now, where I am is asking everybody to sit in front of me. <laughs> I pulled my neck uh, doing sutras, believe it or not, at the hospital. So if you could all move that over in that direction, I'd appreciate it. So in order for me to make a plan of action for change, I need to know where I am now. In order for me to know what direction I need to go for my benefit, I need to know where I stand now. So when we take inventory, what we are looking at is exactly that. Where are you at this place and time of your own spiritual journey? Where would you like to be at this place and time in your own spiritual journey? What do you see or perceive? And there's a difference between seeing and perceiving. Again, as Nipo's uh, comparison to making a stained glass window 
He talks about the difference between seeing and perceiving. In order to see clearly what is necessary is to be honest with myself. Shakespeare Buddha said, to thine own self be true, to thine own self be honest, and everything else follows naturally. So to be honest with myself requires a real devotion on my part to, again, being true when I do this inventory. So where am I now in my life? Whether you want to call it your spiritual journey or your life doesn't matter to me because we're all on a spiritual journey. I'm on one and so are you. Some of us prefer to talk about my life. So where are you in your life right now? Where are, how would you measure the quality of your own contentment and your own satisfaction and sense of fulfillment? And when you do that, what do you see? Or what do you perceive as lacking? And when we talk about the difference between seeing and perceiving, whenever we talk about the difference of my perception of my life and what's really so, and that's all part of the process. The process involves creating clarity in my life. Because once again, you know, and we often see this in, in people who try to lose weight through dieting or people who try to get healthy through exercising. You know, you ask people, what do you want to achieve? I want to lose weight, okay? So I can get one pound off you by tomorrow. You happy? You're saying? So one of the things we lack in our effort is real clarity. What do I mean, you know, to say, for example, I want to be happy? You know, what does that mean to you to be happy? Do you know what that means to you to be happy? Do you know, and after 40 years of doing this, what is curious is that I have found that most people don't know what it means to be happy. They want me to help them be happy, and when I ask them, well, what would that look like, they don't know. They don't know. And if you don't know, I don't know, you're saying. Because I will tell you, I have some really unique definitions of happiness, you're saying, that make me happy that may not work for you. So one of the problems with forums such as this, where you come and visit me and I talk to you about certain topics and you go home and you may even feel inspired and excited, has to do with what follows. And often you hear me say the validity of what we do here tonight follows when you leave. It's after you leave. The validity of what we do is what you do with this after you leave. So you need to be taking inventory and the process involves honesty and clarity. Knowing the difference between perceiving what you need and really seeing clearly. Because our perceptions are a function of our condition. Our perceptions are a function of our conditioning. Our perceptions are what we see through the windows or glasses of what we have come to believe through our social, religious, cultural, national, personal conditioning, our childhood experiences, the people we are listening to, the people we are reading, and so forth. So our perception is always crowded with the fog of indecisiveness. And that's why so often when we, you know, we, we get up and we say, I'm going to do this, 
we don't do it or finish it, not because we're not capable or even because it doesn't work, whatever that may be, but because we are indecisive about where we want to be or because we haven't taken the time to be honest about where we are. The difference between what I'm talking about and the way most people live their lives is that most of us live our lives surviving. When you talk to people about how they're living their lives, even their spiritual life, even their spiritual practice, whether that's meditation or yoga, is usually about surviving. They meditate because it gets them through the day. Or they do yoga because it, you know, it renews and restores their body to feeling better. And then they go back to the battlefield or they go back to the good fight. Spirituality or authentic spirituality is not about surviving. It is not about just getting through the night. It has to do with thriving. A thriving life is a life lived authentically. A life that is thriving, that is you know, alive and has a vision for itself and has a purpose and meaning for itself is what we mean by thriving. And most of us aren't even aware of our, if I ask you what is your vision for your life? What is your purpose for your life? Again, we end up spending many hours talking about that and we either get to it or we don't. So clarity of intention, actually seeing where I want to be is absolutely essential. So I want to ask you to take a moment right now to think about that question. When you look at your life, where do you want to be compared to where you are? And if you are where you want to be, and you're being honest about that, okay, why? So the Buddha might say, if you are where you want to be, then my only uh, lesson to teach you tonight is to keep doing more of what you're doing. Okay? If you're not where you want to be, if you would prefer not to be fighting and arguing and struggling to get this to happen and, and uh, you know, discontent with moments of burst of happiness and what have you, then my lesson to you is it's in the behavior. We are our actions. And so the other thing you need to know is that I've never known a discontented bird. I've never known a deer dissatisfied with itself wanting to be something other than a deer because of that. I've never seen it. I've never witnessed it. And what I'm saying to you is that we, like the whole of nature, are designed to thrive, not just survive. We, like the whole of nature, are designed to thrive, not just survive. We are designed for happiness and wholeness and well-being. And what nature teaches us, which we human beings have made so complex, is that in nature, when you observe it, that contentment is found in the simplest things. If you've ever watched a bird 
find a puddle of water and watch a three-year-old find a puddle of water, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. If you ever have observed a bird in a puddle of water and a three-year-old in a puddle of water, you know what I mean. We are designed for happiness and contentment and joy and to find all of that in the simplest of things. And yet, when you ask people what will make you happy, that's the most complex question you can ask them. It's the most complex question you can ask them. But if you and I are designed for simplicity, then why are our lives and the answers to those questions so complex? And obviously, it has to do, or maybe not so obviously, it has to do with the lack of real wisdom and knowledge of who we truly are, or what the Buddha called ignorance. So when you take a look at the first heavenly virtue, and it's a word that you know, scared me as a young Catholic boy as much as it does today. <laughs> Chastity. But when you take a look at the Zen Buddhist interpretation of the meaning of chastity, you read courage and boldness, embracing moral wholesomeness, or what I call integrity, and achieving purity of thought through education and spiritual development. Through education and spiritual development. People want to be happy, but don't want to do the work. You're saying. And by that I mean is this. When we, look at the when we look at the words through education and spiritual development, in Zen, education includes not just the study of the sutras, and the teachings of the masters, but this inquire, inquiry into myself, regular contemplative reflection, taking time every day in my life to reflect on who I am and who I want to be. And again, if you've been listening to any of my talks over the years, happiness is a function of authenticity. I am never going to be happy unless who I am in every moment is authentic, is who I really am. And in October of, uh, in October of 2014, when we closed this year's Ango training period and return in September, in October, November, I'm going to do a two-Saturday um, uh, workshop on the practice of living authentically. And it has to do with what I believe is the central issue, that until the individual really masters the issue of living authentically and confronting the question of something like, why can't I say no? Saying, why can't I mean what I say and say what I really mean? And so when we take the time to do this, you know, uh, inquiry into who I am in the moment. That's all part of it. How am I really with being honest with others? How am I really with saying what I mean and meaning what I say? 
So too often we think that my, my life is working because everything is calm and what have you. But, you know, in the past several months because of several tragic incidents that I've been part of in other people's lives and in my own as well, uh, again, the words, a person, the quality of a person's life is measured in those tragedies and not when things are going well. You see, it's, e it's not only easy to be a holy man on the mountain, it's easy to be happy and content when things are going our way, you're saying. But when you listen to, for example, uh, Abraham Lincoln's <laughs> definition of happiness, when he says that he believes people are as happy as they choose to be, he talks about happiness as a real conscious choice, it has to do with being in the moment, who I want to be in the moment. So when we talk about living courageously and with boldness, it takes courage to be authentic. Because you and I are born into a culture and into a society that from day one defines for us who we are going to be. From day one, you are assigned an identity. Anyone know what that is? A name? Your social security number. <laughs> okay, that's one. I often, in, in the book that I'm writing, I talk about the fact that when I was born, I was not born to my parents. Now, my parents would be shocked to hear that. <laughs> but who was born to my parents was their dream of who I would be in my lifetime. Needless to say, they are not content. <laughs> so we live in a culture and a society that literally defines for us who we are going to be in our lifetime. It takes courage to stand up to that force and live boldly who you truly are. And this is the true meaning of chastity. The true meaning of chastity is to refuse to allow anything outside yourself to define who you will be. That's what it means to be chaste. You know Embracing moral wholesomeness, integrity. Embracing moral wholesomeness. So one of the problems with changing the world is that we discriminate with our compassion. We discriminate with our love. We talk about loving all beings, but do we really love all beings? You see? No, we don't. And moral wholesomeness is very much like what Gandhi and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. taught people if they were going to change the injustice they witnessed in their lifetime. And that is, violence begets violence. To become violent about the violence against yourself just causes more violence. Now, if you take that to the next level, moral wholesomeness says, and this is how I interpret it in my own life, being a parent of a five-year-old daughter, who's going to be six in a few weeks, what I have said to her from day one, 
Daddy absolutely loves you and will always love you. But Daddy may not always experience that. That may not be my experience in some moments of our interaction over the next however many years. But I promise you, I will always act like that. I will always communicate like that. Except sometimes. And when those sometimes happen, I will clean up my mess. You see? This is what we mean by moral wholesomeness. One of the problems with, again, this lack of stability that most people feel in their lives, this lack of groundedness, is that most people are unreliable, not only to others, but to themselves. We make excuses for those moments we don't even practice our own moral righteousness in our own lives. We find it acceptable to hurt someone with words, to hurt someone with our actions. And, 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 and instead of seeing that as unacceptable, and when it happens, take the measures to immediately clean it up so that we can return to the center, which is where we belong, which is where we thrive, uh, you know how that often plays out in relationships. So embracing moral wholesomeness is to embrace a code of morals and a devotion to living those morals unconditionally. Responsibly. And by responsibly I mean none of us, myself included in this room, is perfect at this. There are times when the pain is just so bad so difficult that we're going to, uh, you know, mess up. And that's okay. And what I mean by that is, that's okay if what follows, we clean up our mess. Because none of us, none of us are exempt from the responsibility. One of the examples I often give has to do with a gentleman who I was legal guardian of for about 25 years before he died. He was mentally retarded, but he was well enough to live in society, and so uh, I became his guardian and managed his monies and, and, his, and, and all of that involved, including an apartment in Trenton, New Jersey. And when I found the apartment, I purposely chose this one because it was right across the street from a supermarket. And one of the things that Harold would regularly do is call me, living in Cinnamon at the time, uh, and he always called me dad, even though he was three years older than me. Uh, so, he, so he would call me, dad, you coming up? Yes, I'm coming up. Bring me some bread and orange juice on the way up, and every time I would say, no, I'm not bringing you anything. I gave you your allowance. There's a supermarket across the street. Go get it. So on one occasion, I was at my parents' house, and my family was involved with Harold too and uh, my mother immediately jumped all over me hearing me say that why do you treat him like that why do you talk to him like that the poor man's retarded and what have you and, and I said to her if I die tomorrow Harold knows where to get his orange juice and bread I said if I keep bringing it to him what's he going to do sit in his apartment and starve and then there were occasions when Harold would speak out of nowhere, and his words weren't always pleasant in public. 
and you, you didn't have, you know, the, uh, I, I don't know what to call it, to, to know, to withhold certain remarks. And I would take him aside and we would have a talk about that and I would tell Harold he need to learn to do that because being mentally handicapped or not did not exempt him if he was going to participate in the world. None of us are exempt. We all have our limitations and we must live our life at the level of excellence even if it's a limited excellence, let's say. And this is what we mean by devotion or embracing. To embrace means to literally put my arms around, draw within to me, and become that. Be that. So when I embrace you, I'm literally joining with you, communing with you. So to embrace moral wholesomeness is to live by integrity. And Webster defines integrity as a strict adherence to a particular way of being. So when we talk about chastity, we talk about the courage and boldness, first of all, to live authentically in the world. The courage to say what I mean and mean what I say, which is a moral practice itself. You see, when you consider all the deception in government, in business, and all of that, to just be honest, will change the world. So the courage and boldness to speak not only the truth, but your truth, and to embrace moral wholesomeness and achieve purity of thought. Now the practice of purity of thought in Zen begins with an understanding that, as the Buddha said, we are not our thoughts. And most of us find it difficult to achieve purity of thought because we continue to practice and live our lives as if we are our thoughts. So I'm not going to change because that's not what I think, you're saying. But when you do the work of serious meditation practice, you clearly begin to see that the teachings of the Dharma on thoughts, feelings, and emotions are right there. And by that I mean we are not our thoughts. To achieve purity of thought is to recognize those thoughts that are habitual in nature and conditional. That is, notice, for example, every time a certain circumstance or situation occurs in your life, the thought that shows up. And you will notice that that's the same thought that's been showing up forever. You're saying? Except sometimes. And the sometimes you will notice when it's not is when you are mindfully involved in the thinking. And that's where you are inserting your moral wholesomeness into the process. So again, back to the example of my daughter, there are certainly occasions when I am very tired, very exhausted, long day, she's still got the energy, still going, doesn't listen, and the thought of rage shows up, and I insert my moral wholesomeness in the process, and rather than act that out as okay, you know, 
I choose to be who I want to be with my daughter in that moment. This is what we mean, achieving purity of thought. We can only achieve purity of thought, and again, I'll talk about, again, the other part of this that's so important. We can only achieve purity of thought when we are living mindfully, aware of how this mind is operating from moment to moment. We say it this way in Zen, without a clear understanding of how the mind is operating from moment to moment, suffering compounds. Without a clear understanding that we are not our thoughts, that these are learned responses or learned habitual reactions to circumstances and situations. We learn this in an early age and we habitually react that way since. And it's a habitual reaction that the only recourse to that reaction, the only solution to changing that is to again mindfully insert ourselves into our life and through mindfulness and awareness of that behavior, insert the moral code for the opposite to happen. And so the way that behavior becomes almost, let me say that again, the way that behavior has become habitual for us is the way we change that behavior by habitually inserting our moral integrity into our actions from moment to moment. Any questions? Here's another word that's, we can ask, oh, here's another word that scares people, abstinence. <laughs> to abstain, if you will. This is difficult for most people because once again, our cultural conditioning is to grab as much as you can saying, to indulge as much as you can. I mean, every media component on television and on the radio is telling you to grab, telling you to indulge, you know. Whether it's a, uh, a hamburger commercial or the new car, if you will. The practice of abstinence is culturally reprehensible, if you will. <laughs> But you're not going to find your contentment and satisfaction in our culture. Neither are you going to find it in our society. The Zen definition of abstinence is constant mindfulness of others and one's immediate involvement, practicing self-control, abstention, and moderation. So the only thing that prevents me, and you need to know this, this I can, as I'm saying this to you, I can see in my head how this happened. What brought about my abstaining from behaving in ways harmful to my child was the first time I behaved in a way that was harmful to her, scared the daylights out of her, and I saw that. And that memory has become an imprint in my mind. So every time I move towards which scared her the first time I ever did that, that shows up for me. Now, I can only be aware of that by being aware of that, by practicing mindfulness. And by practicing mindfulness, I mean 
mindfulness of others and one's immediate environment. I need to be mindful of my daughter. I need to be mindful of you and who you are to me and what you mean to me and what I hope for you. So to abstain from behaviors that are both harmful to myself and others, I need to be mindful of others. The way we normally do it is that we decide what we want and what we need. And we go after that and we, or we behave in certain ways and are surprised that we're not content that way. And here's the mystery of life. And it is a mystery when you think about it. The, the contentment we are looking for in ourselves can only be found in helping others find it in themselves. So when I forget my rage, my impatience, my tiredness, whatever it may be that is supporting the notion of yelling at my daughter in a way that when I did it the first time scared the daylights out of her, okay? When I forget that self, for her benefit, I find my contentment and joy. Didn't you have to do it? Didn't you have to lose it to gain something? Well, that's what I just said. Yeah. That's what I just said. When I did that the first time, that the, the mindfulness that I brought to that, the memory of that, acts as an imprint for me now. And what I gained from that is the ability to abstain. I got that, but we all do things that we're that teach us not to do them. So we're not, and we have to have that negative experience before we can learn something. And you can so. have that negative experience once. <laughs> if you have it twice, three times three times that's what I'm saying. Gotcha. Yeah. I had that negative experience, and remember today the look on her face and how it scared her, okay? I didn't have to go three times. But, again, it doesn't mean I'm not going to mess up. Because, because we do. And then you clean it up. Yeah, and then you clean it up. So yes, we learn only from our mistakes, if that's helpful. We learn only from our mistakes. But, Many people never learn from their mistakes because they take their mistakes for granted. And that's where we come back to all of this works. Maybe they it, don't learn about their mistakes because they're not willing to look at themselves. Well, you want to do this or you want me to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. I've had a long day. <laughs> exactly, Ellen. Okay. Give me a moment, I'm getting there. I was just trying to clarify it in my own mind. Yeah. All right. You helped me. So Thank yes, you. most people never learn from their mistakes because they're unwilling to make the investment to look at themselves, you see. But I want to say that a little different. Perhaps the investment would not be so difficult if we remember that the person making that mistake is not who we are. The person we are is the person who regrets that mistake. Mm -hmm. That's the person we truly are. And spirituality, spiritual practice, is about cultivating the ground for that person to thrive 
and the person would not to be to diminish you see and that can only be achieved by investing ourselves in that practice by investing ourselves in the practice of abstinence it can only be achieved by doing that so spirituality is the practice of cultivating the ground for the person we truly are to thrive and so when we mess up and we feel that regret for messing up we need to inquire into the person who feels the regret and we need to nurture and we need to cultivate the ground for that person to thrive and the more and more we do that the mistake or the times we commit the mistake begins to diminish and break apart constant mindfulness of others we need to really and by that i don't mean the codependent mindfulness of others when we again take a look at the uh, program that i've set up for o october the practice of living authentically one of the questions we we will look at or one of the issues we will look at is how we are so easy willing to dismiss ourselves and to be dishonest with ourselves and others to placate the ignorance of others, okay? And that's not what I'm talking about. To be mindful of others is to be mindful of your love for others. Is to be mindful, for example, again back to my daughter, to be mindful of who she is to me in my life and what I want for her, rather than just shooting from the hip when I feel like it. Abstinence, like chastity, and the remaining five virtues is a discipline. It is a means and an ends at the same time. It is an ends in that this is who we truly are. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this together tonight. And it is a means to an end in that the practice of which disciplines us, strengthens us, nurtures us. To live nobly, just think about, just... Imagine the image of that. To live nobly is who we really want to be. And our, and our nobility is not in the amount of money we have in our bank account, not in the status we have in society, but in our unwillingness to act outside our code that we have set up for ourselves, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. If you haven't seen the movie Selma, you need to see the movie Selma. And I must warn you ahead of time that at least when I saw it, I wept. But in between the tears, what jumped out at me was the nobility of these simple people, ordinary people, when they were willing to stand up against the viciousness of ignorance, to stand up without striking back, without being equally violent, no matter what. Uh, there was a beauty. There was, there was a, you know, I, I can understand how, you know, I, one of the, one of the uh, more, more uh, likable scenes was when Johnson was flipping out in the White House because 70 million people were watching this, he said, you know. And he knew what that meant. He knew that once people saw this, it, it, they weren't going to stand for it because it's in us. These were perfect strangers to most of those 70 million people. 
These were people of, of a color and, and a race that, that their culture somewhere in their life taught them to disdain and to reject and disenfranchise. And yet, when they saw this violence, uh, wasn't going to allow it. The same happened with the war. I talked about this the other night with uh, the monks and some of my students together. You know, the, what brought the Vietnam War to a close was the media's coverage of the war. And that's why when we went into Iraq, Schwarzkopf's first thing was to do was refuse the cameras on the battlefield. What's he the, knew. The term is embedded, yes. embedded journalism. Yes, embedded journalism. See, see nothing, hear nothing. Right, right, mm -hmm. exactly. Because they know that once the human heart views such violence, such, such horrors, it cannot stand it. So to be mindful of others, you know, you know, when I went to the hospital, I knew what I was going to today. And all the training in 40 years as a monk does not prepare you to, uh, to witness the corpse of a newborn baby and to witness the grief of her mother. And so all I could do was hold her hand and cry with her. That's all I could do. And, Matt, and, and, and the grief that I felt with her and the empathy I felt with her, as I said to her, was, my God, what if it was Katie? You see? So spirituality, and again, as you often hear me talk about my opposition to even our contemporary definition of spirituality in the West, is really about allowing those parts of us that hurt and pain for the world. The highest bodhisattva in Buddhism is depicted in the statue on that altar, Avalokitesvada. She is the epitome of bodhisattva. She is the top saint. She is the top level of consciousness and awareness and enlightenment. She represents that. And she represents that because it is said, Avalokitesvara, bodhisattva of compassion, hears the voices of the suffering in the world. And if you look closely at that, at the level of her heart, she has an urn that is tilted downward and pours the urn, pours the oil of compassion out to the world. And the message there is that if you want to achieve the highest level of consciousness, your heart must be open to the suffering in your life and, into the li and in the lives of others, and to be willing to experience that grief and pain. You know, back to Ellen's uh, interaction with me a moment ago, it is our mistakes that teach us. It is our openness to really see the suffering in our environment, back to the definition of one's immediate environment, to really see the suffering and to be open to hear that and experience that within yourself that changes us and transforms us. But most of us practice spirituality and other things in our life as a way of shutting that out. We build big fences and walls to keep that out. But you see, in spiritual practice, and again, I'm always dumbfounded by the arrogance, what I call arrogance, of those who claim to be authorities of spirituality, 
when all of the teachers, from Buddha to Jesus, from the prophets to the sages in China, all of these teachers, when you look at their own path, somewhere along the line, had to leave the comfort and the security to experience the suffering and the fear before they could teach anything of value. You know, it's like I often, uh, like I used to say when I first started this work um, back in 1985. Uh, eventually, uh, the uh, I, I was a director of a Catholic retreat house in in Mount Holly, and then two years later opened up my own zendo, the first zendo. Jizoan uh, in Riverton, New Jersey, and most of the people from the retreat house followed me there. So when my Catholic brothers and sisters would come and ask me to give them the secret to happiness, I would say something like to them, okay, let me make sure I'm clear. Uh, you believe, because you recite this creed on Sundays, that God's Son came into the world, was betrayed, rejected, beaten, murdered, had to descend into hell before he could ascend into heaven, and you want to fast away from me. <laughs> there isn't. We must open our hearts and be responsible for our actions, which again the Buddha defines as the only thing that defines who we truly are. And this is the meaning of abstinence. Maisie, uh, you have a sheet in front of you? Uh, Ellen, say the next one, because my mouth gets curled up with that. Liberality. Thank you. Generosity. Being the liberal you are, I knew you were able to say that. <laughs> Shall I read it? <laughs> yes, please. Generosity, willingness to give, a nobility of thought or actions. So, one of the precepts we Buddhists take, which leads to the wearing of the rock suit, has to do with the practice of generosity. To be generous not only with our financial gifts, but with all of our gifts. So liberality means that one of the morals of the truly virtuous life has to do with living what I tell my students, my life as a benefit for others. And to be generous with my gifts, my talents, my wholeness, my well-being, at the service of others. A willingness to give. How many of us give unwillingly? You're saying, little, you know, like, oh, oh, you know, like, all right, you know. I get calls like the rest of you, you know, on the telephone. But a willingness to give. Uh, there's that uh, story in the Torah and in the Gospels of Jesus where he's in the temple in Jerusalem with his uh, students, and he points to a poor woman uh, who is putting two pennies into the collection box. And he says to them, she's given more than all of the other wealthy people here because she didn't really have it to give, but she still gave. And that's what we mean by a willingness to give, a willingness to be helpful. Uh, in one of my earlier talks this week or last week, I lose all track of time when I say these things because they never really listen to me so I don't remember. But somewhere along the line in the past 30 days uh, I talked about how you cannot be dissatisfied and 
and bored when you're being useful. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. When you're being useful, so if you find yourself bored, rather than looking for something to gratify you and excite you, get up and go be useful somewhere. You can't be dissatisfied and bored when you're being useful. I'm saying. So, liber liberality? Did I say it right? Yes. Liberality. Well, I did say it right. <laughs> Generosity, a willingness to give, a nobility of thought or actions. What would that look like to you? What would a nobility of thought look like to you? Anyone? Maisie? Uh, lack of judgment. Mm -hmm. Treating people equally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, when I, uh, if you know where the University of Pennsylvania Hospital is, it's in uh, where the universities are. And today was graduation day. And there were Porsches and Mercedes everywhere, okay? Which you figure to go there, you, there's gotta be, you know? And so there was also, you know, it was just such beauty everywhere. The women were beautiful, the men were handsome, and so forth and I'm walking down the street to get to the hospital and I'm observing all of this beauty and all of this you know, uh, great wealth and what have you and as I turn the corner, this homeless person comes right at me. And I mindfully looked at him directly, just as I looked at the beautiful women and, and everyone else on my path before him. And I remembered Suzuki Roshi uh, the founder of the, of the San Francisco Zen Center, they talked about how every morning before the morning uh, sitting, he would get up and go get a cup of coffee at a local coffee shop and would purposely walk the route where the homeless were. And he would stop and bow, gosho and bow, to each of the homeless persons and look at them. He would talk about, you need to look at them in their face you need to treat them as a human being by looking at them, you see. If you don't do anything else, look at them, you see. So it's a practice of learning to see without prejudice. And generosity, a willingness to give your thoughts, your time, your heart to uh, the disenfranchised. And, you know, I want to say something else about that. So I stopped to get lunch before uh, I went up to the hospital and everybody in the graduating gang was getting lunch in the place too. And I took time to look at the faces there as well and notice that even in the most beautiful and the most wealthy faces, I could find some loneliness and despair. So we are to look there too. Uh, we need to be careful that you know, yes, in general, the scales are usually tipped this way, but we don't want them to tip the other way either. So when we talk about loving all beings, we mean rich and poor, young and old, those who go to war or commit wars, those who go to war are usually victims, but those who commit wars and devote to wars and those who devote to peace and loving kindness, all equally. Diligence, a zealous and prudent nature in one's action and work. 
decisive work ethic, budgeting one's time, monitoring one's own activities to guard against laziness. So a zealous, so again, it's not enough to feel bad for what's happening in the world. We need to engage in whatever way we possibly can to change that. And again, when we take generosity and a willingness to give, we mean also my time, to make the time to not just be practicing spirituality for my benefit, but for the benefit of the world. In fact, in Zen Buddhism, spirituality is inauthentic unless it is practiced for the benefit of all. Unless it is practiced for the benefit of all. So a zealous, if you will, practice is one where, yes, I am aware of my environment, aware of the suffering in that environment, and consciously, again, looking where I can be useful in changing that and, 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 and allowing for cessation from that suffering. A prudent nature is, again, when we talk about being prudent, we talk about, you know, again, behaving in such a way that my code defines my behavior in one's actions and work. Now, in Zen, particularly in the Soto school of Zen Buddhism, work practice is equal to meditation practice. What do I mean by that? In Zen monasteries from the day Dogen Zenji, the father of the Soto Zen schools in Japan, set them up, there was a rule in the monastery that always went like this. One day's work, one day's meal. No work, no meal. Because Dogen saw work and how we apply ourselves to it. So when we are, it can be the simplest thing is cleaning our home. So in this monastery, when you come to train, and you need to do that, you need to become members when you leave here tonight. When you come to train, the work practice is a spiritual practice. So when we talk about diligence in my work practice, we mean exactly that. To be diligent in my work practice is to be in my work practice when I'm working. And to be wanting to bring to that effort a level of excellence that I want to bring to everywhere else in my life. Again, it's about living at the level of excellence. Whether we're talking about our uh, relationships, our intimate relationships, our friends, our neighborhood, our work uh, relationships. To bring a diligence to our work practice is to bring a nobility to my work practice. Now the way most of us do it is that we judge the quality that we're willing to devote today to this job by what we think about the place. And if what you think about the place is at such a level for you that you are willing to compromise your own integrity, you need to find another job, okay? And I know that it's hard in this society to find jobs that you're going to like. So that's another workshop that I'm doing 
whereas I've had this conversation recently with one of my students, and I've had it on numerous occasions with someone coming for counseling, and it has to do with changing my perception of work. And for example, in my life, whether you know it or not, even I donate to the sustainability of this monastery. I don't get paid, they don't get paid, every member donates. So my family has a business that I've been involved in since I was born. Remember, I was born according to my father's definition. Okay? And uh, it's not a job that I enjoy doing. I don't find any pleasure in it. I don't find any satisfaction in it. So when I am called to insert myself into it uh, and go into the office and do some work, uh, I bring this practice to it because my perception is, is that this is the money that I can use to do this work. You see? So we need to change our attitude about how we make our money. If you cannot find reasons in your environment that excite you enough to be diligent and noble in the workplace, then maybe you need that as your reason. You see? And corporations operate the same way we do. And that I mean when you are working to benefit the sustainability and success of the corporation, even though it's not much, that comes back to you, you see. And now you have the means to take that sustenance and use it for what really matters to you, for what's really meaningful. So money is not the, the devil. Money is can be the devil or, or, or God or Christ or Jesus or whatever, whatever term works for you, depending on how you use it. A zealous and prudent nature in one's actions and work. And again, you can begin to bring this virtue to life by going home. You know, one of the things that uh, I talk about and have practiced all my life, because my father taught me this at very young, is when I wake up in the morning, I make my bed. So I'm teaching my daughter to do the same, and when she uh, gets resistant about it, you know, why? Well, I said, well, because you slept in it. <laughs> yeah, but why do I have to make the bed? Because it's your bed. But what I also tell her is this, listen, the house takes care of us. It keeps us warm, it keeps us dry, it keeps us safe. We need to take care of the house so that the house takes care of us. She gets that, okay? She gets that. So again, work, whether we're talking about dusting and running the vacuum, cleaning the house and taking care of it because it is your house. And you know, if that doesn't work for you, I often ask people to consider this. Look how much you work to pay for that place. You know, think about it. Where am I here? Oh, decisive work ethic. Budgeting one's time. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about budgeting one's time in this way. I want to find out why this isn't working. I don't know if it's gotten cooler out or not. I'm hot. Well then see if it's gotten cooler out. 
I know it feels warm. I'm warm. Open <laughs> the door. Suzuki Roshi used to say, thank you. Suzuki Roshi used to say, Zen students are like watermelons. You knock on their heads and it sounds like nothing's in there. So, or as my Sicilian grandfather would say, nobody home. <laughs> of course I know it's hot. <laughs> Budgeting one's time. You may think your money is the greatest thing you have to give, but the, the, the greatest thing you have to give is your time. Budgeting one's time has to do with priorities. For those of you whose mantra is, I don't have enough time, there's never enough time. The solution is in inquiring into and being honest about your priorities. When we talk about prudence, we talk about diligence, we talk about integrity, and this is something in my life that I have learned over 40 years, its importance. And that is, again, we don't have enough time. We never know when it's all gonna come to an end. So budget it prudently and budget it according to priorities. And by that I mean, again, if your spiritual development is a priority, you need to stop putting meditation and prayer and yoga, whatever it may be for you, after everything else, you're saying. There's a reason, and it's not because I'm a Zen master or an ordained monk, there's a reason I get up at four o'clock in the morning and come in here and meditate because nothing else will work if I don't. There's a reason why I practice mindfulness, because nothing else will work if I don't. Everything flows from the time I make, not look for and find, but from the time I make to invest my time into. So you need to budget your time in that way. You need to Again, look at your priorities and set up your time of the day schedule according to your priorities and not according to what you have to do, per se. And again, when you do it this way, you will discover much of what you think you have to do, you don't. You don't really have to do it. You've just been doing it that way for so long, per se. Monitoring one's own activities to guard against laziness. If you have a chronic illness, you know how laziness can really creep up and dominate your time and your engagement in life. And ha being someone with a chronic illness, COPD and a heart disease that I deal with every day, I will be honest with you, I will confess that sometimes I get lazy. I just don't feel like getting up and doing and monitoring against laziness is absolutely essential absolutely essential there is in zen monasteries again throughout the world there is a strict adherence to a particular schedule and there is no time unless you are ill 
There is no time where you are not working when it's, not when it's time to work. There's a time to rest and a time to be working, a time to meditate and a time to be reflecting, a time for pleasure and a time for reflection and so forth. And there's a strict adherence to following that schedule. The reason for that is that laziness is a powerful force that creeps up in many ways. So the virtue of diligence, again, in, includes guarding against laziness, guarding against it. You don't have time to waste. Don't be lazy. Laziness will rob you of so many of the vital energies, not only of the body, but of the mind as well. Patience is a virtue. How's that go? Possess it if you can. What is it? Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you right. can. So I will tell you tonight, you do possess it. And the key to being patient is practicing patience. The key to being patient is practicing patience. And if you are practicing mindfulness, you can discipline patience you can become disciplined in patience. Because again, patience is a choice to abstain from behavior that is harmful to yourself or others. Forbearance and endurance through moderation. If you pace yourself in the course of the day, impatience will not surface. Forbearance and moderation equals endurance. You can endure the long schedule of the day when you practice moderation. And again, when you go back to doing diligence, where you're budgeting your time, that's the practice of moderation. Do you really have to be doing so much? I will tell you something. Busyness is the way the mind escapes facing its life. We keep ourselves busy so we don't have to see what's in front of us. You know what I'm so we need to take guard that we're not using all of this busyness in our life to avoid our life. The surest way to avoid your life is to be busy. See? So there's a time to be busy and a time not to be busy. Forbearance and endurance through moderation. Resolving conflicts peacefully as opposed to resorting to verbal or physical violence. Again, in my work early on in my uh, priesthood, uh, this whole thing you see today actually began in 1975, working with single mothers in abusive relationships. And uh, one of the things that all, you know, we talked a great deal about and one of the most difficult lessons to teach was my mantra that if he is verbally or physically abusive, you leave. Period. End of discussion. There's no other path. You leave. Verbal and physical abuse is unacceptable at all times. End of story. End of story. You don't, you don't get to verbally or physically abuse me. 
And so you can rest assured that I will not verbally or physically abuse you. you know saying? So when we talk about opposed to resorting to verbal or physical violence, that is an absolute virtue. Forget any of the other virtues if it is not an absolute practice. That is an absolute virtue. The ability to forgive, to show mercy to those who offend us, is probably one of the greatest and most powerful disciplines. Especially to show mercy to those who offend us. Uh, there's this, uh, I forget what network it's on, uh, that I discovered one night, late at night, and when I got my new toy from Comcast, the Xfinity Level 1 Super super thing, whatever. So I was just playing with it one night and I came across this uh, series, um, um, American something, and it powerful, powerful series on the live people who are involved in crime and, and the whole criminal justice and victims of crime and so forth. And um, uh, in, the, in this, in the first, this was his first season. So in this season, the, the narrative was about uh, one, of, one of the, it was four families and, and the main family, uh, the son and his wife were shot, the son was murdered. And uh, just so happened that the guy accused of it, uh, his sister who helps him is a Muslim. And um, ends up that the guy accused of it was innocent, he didn't do it. But the family, uh, you know, you see this, this you know, progression into hatred that turns into anti-Muslim, anti-black, and all of that. And the tragedy at the end of the series is that the guy's found it. Innocent, he's released because the true killer confessed. So he's walking around on the streets one night and the father of the son walks up to him and shoots him in the head and kills him. And then, and the next scene is where his sister is coming to the same hospital where what the father did is after he shot him, he shot himself. So we've got the father and the victim in the hospital and both families showing up at the same time. And in this one scene, the, the actress playing the Muslim sister sees the mother uh, of, the, of the other victim and they come together in this embrace and just cry in each other's arms. Mm -hmm. And you hear them both, you know, talk about forgiveness, you know So there was an opportunity for real malice, real uh, ven vindictiveness, and yet they chose to forgive those who offended. It is the single most powerful force. To practice forgiveness takes real work, even for me. And to show mercy to those who offend us is, again, a function of living diligently, virtuously, and mindfully. Kindness speaks for itself. Charity, compassion, friendship, and sympathy without prejudice for its own sake. We do not practice charity to achieve some spiritual consciousness. We do not show compassion 
or friendship or sympathy for any other reason but its own sake. It's who we are. So when we talk about practicing these virtues and, and when we talk about truly being them in the world, it's for our benefit. So we don't do it in a way that we puff ourselves up and make those who don't practice it less. It's for our benefit to practice it. To be kind is for our benefit. So we practice it for kindness sake alone. And last but not least, humility. Modest behavior, selflessness, and the giving of respect. Giving credit where credit is due, not unfairly glorifying one's own self. Modest behavior. So again, humility is to behave modestly. Uh, Charlotte Joko Beck, I shared this uh, the other day in one of my teachings, in one of her books, talks about um, uh, the relationship between student and teachers and the purpose of a Zen center. And one of the th instructions she gave in her guide to her students and monks before she died was that she, she, would, she writes, a senior student should be of service to others without others knowing they're being of service. So the senior student, she would say, should be working the hardest in the monastery and being of service to others without others even noticing their being of service. So this is what we mean by modesty in Zen, to serve selflessly, selflessly, the giving of respect. You know, this word respect has been used and continues to be used in so many, many, many ways. And yet, when you take the time to uh, read its definition, the clarity of its, of its importance jumps out at you. And to respect means, it comes from the Latin root that means to look again or take a second look. So when you respect yourself before you go to judgment and criticism of yourself or before you go to judgment and criticism of anyone else to respect someone else is to take the time to look again before you open your mouth and before you act. That's what real respect means. Real respect is to not only take the time to look again, but if you take the time to look again, you are taking the time to look at that person from where they are standing. From there, you know, like the Native, uh, Native American saying goes, you know, walk in a man's shoes for a mile, you know, say, before you judge them. So respect means to really look at the offender you know, when we look at, you know, forgiveness, to look at the offender from their point of view, you know, and so forth. And, you know, that takes a lot of work and a lot of discipline. Giving credit where credit is due. Applauding your opposition's successes. Being happy for others', you know, uh, blessings. And even if you don't have it. I say, to really take the time to thank someone for something they did for you. This is a practice I, I apply in my own practice with diligence. I don't let, I don't let a waitress, a waiter, I don't let the guy who pumps gas into my car 
leave my company until they know I'm grateful or say. They hear me say thank you or say. So to be grateful and to give credit, you know, the next time you think you're on your own, you're doing, getting through life on your own, you got to take time to stop and think about that. Say, <laughs> that's the biggest lie we tell ourselves. Say, and uh, not only will it help you diminish that false sense of being alone in the world, but you get to notice there's a lot of people that make it possible for you to be here tonight. Say, and many of them you never even get to meet. So taking time to give credit where credit is due, is a valuable force for change. Not unfairly glorifying one's own self. And that's not a complete sentence as the Zen practice is to puff oneself up and diminish another person's importance is what we're talking about. Self-pride is important until that pride, again, diminishes another person's value. That's, a di that's the difference. Self-pride is important until that pride diminishes another person's value. Modest behavior is simplicity. To live simply in one's life. Uh, to enjoy the pleasures, to meet the challenges, and to do all of it in a, you know, a humble way. Because Every single person, and again, when I am exposed to and have to enter into the valley of the shadow of death as I did today, and I walked through that hospital, and I saw others in their rooms, and I walked in the streets and saw the homeless and you know people hungry and what have you, uh, the same thought reverberates through my mind over and over again. We're all just trying to make it through the night. And we can't forget that. And we can't forget that. I invite you to consider living the seven heavenly virtues as a spiritual practice and joining me in bringing light to the darkened corners of our world in doing so. Any questions? Hi. Hi. Um, when you were talking about mindfulness of others, I'm sorry, I was, I guess, drifting off, sorry. He sa you said something about mindfulness of others with love, but not in the way of placating? Is that what you Not in the way of... of placating? Oh, yes. When we talk about mindfulness of others, it, it, we're not talking about the, usually the codependent approach, where we become so mindful of another person's needs, we forget our own. So there's a balance there that is necessary. There's a balance there. And to placate another person, uh, that's reference to when, for example, I, when I want to say no, I don't because I'm afraid of their reaction. Okay? Most people, I often say that one of the most difficult things to face and become a powerful practice for changing that habit in our life is to recognize that the next time we say, well, I don't want to hurt her feelings. That what, what we really mean is, I don't want to experience her feelings hurt. <laughs> okay? All right? And so 
that's what I mean by the difference between placating others, you know, expectations or their ignorance. Uh, so keeping silence, saying yes when we mean no, or no when we mean yes, however it is we do that. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good, thank you. Anyone else? Maisie? Roshi, how, how did, for example, chastity and abstinence get such a different definition? Well, was, you have to look at the context. You mean in Catholic school? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have to look at the context it was, rep it was presented. And again, it was presented as an institutional uh, rule, okay, and to keep the masses in line. Mm -hmm. So that's how. You know, takes on a completely different, uh, because again, when you take a look at the church and its male dominance, you know, we want to talk about chastity right. as a way of controlling the opposite sex. And we want to talk about abstinence, again, as a way of ensuring abstinence back in the Renaissance period led to more donations to the church. Kept the bishop fat while you weren't right. hungry. So this was written, this is what the Buddha had said as a, as, as a definition or writings from that time? From the seven heavenly period. virtues, you know, the... What I shared with tonight are the, are the Zen Buddhist interpretation of the meaning of chastity. These virtues, as I shared them tonight, are about personal uh, growth, personal development, rather than a group, as it was presented in, you know, for me in Catholic school, was mm -hmm. a, you know, it was a institutional mm -hmm. uh, context it was presented in. But this is a codified interpretation from I mean, historical time of Buddha or sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Its interpretation is mine, but it's the same code. Yeah. Thank you. That's why I have that word Roshi in my name. I get to do that. <laughs> Anyone else? Just quickly, when you were talking about uh, the movie Selma uh, and compassion and nobility of, of the people, I was thinking um, last before Mother's Day, I watched uh, Philomena with Judy Dench. And I haven't oh, seen it. My father, my father told me to see yeah, it. Just yeah. gorgeous. I mean, her forgiveness, I mean, right. her forgiving the old man who kept her from seeing her son. And I mean, just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Media is doing a good job of conveying these messages. And you will notice that the opposition is always attacking the media. <laughs> no. Anyone else? Thank you. Maybe I'll watch Philomena tonight. So, I want to thank you for coming out tonight. You could have gone to the beach like everyone else, or, or the bars and what have you, but I want to thank you for coming out. Uh, and spending this evening with me, as I always say, it is a privilege. But before you go, I do want to make a pitch again. Membership keeps this place going. Without it, uh, there is no pine wind in the future. So I want to seriously convey to you my desire, especially those of you whose faces I see again and again and again, 
become a member and help keep uh, Pinewind sustained uh, for the world so that uh, both I and the monks and the students and the members here who you know you may or may not be aware of all of the work that we do that again we do uh, as service and benefit to the world and your financial support through your membership helps to make that all possible so become a member and I'm going to just keep saying that over and over again until you do <laughs> maybe I'll come visit you in your dreams <laughs> As always, again and again, it's been a privilege to spend this night with you. Thank you. Thank you. Please keep Rachel and Richard in your thoughts tonight, uh, the parents of Amelia, Suzanne, uh, and all of the Rachels and Richards throughout the world. On June 28th, we have a special event happening here, and I want to welcome you to that event, invite you back to the event, and to spread the word to people you may know. It is a two-hour ceremony on Sunday, June 28th. starts at 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Very special ceremony in memory of children who have died and children who continue to endure uh, the various horror, horrific abuses throughout the world. Uh, human trafficking, child trafficking is on the rise. Uh, poverty in America is predominated by children. Uh, more children are living in poverty in America than anyone else. And the human trafficking of children continues horribly throughout the world in many nations that our own nation uh, consider as friends and so forth. And so we will remember children who have died and children who continue to live in horrible situations through the ceremony, remembering the children on June 28th from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Spread the word for us. I'd like to see a lot of people come out and join in the prayers that will emanate out into the world and help bring to an end this horrific thing we do to our children. June 28th. Anything else, Emya? No, Roshi. Thank you. Uh, well then, uh, enjoy, and uh, peace out. <laughs> <laughs>